So this morning, we're going to take uh, another break from the book of Genesis that we have been in because it is Palm Sunday, if you haven't put that together yet. And, and on Palm Sunday, we, we celebrate the day that Jesus finally proclaimed himself as king and set everything in motion for Passion Week, for Holy Week. Now, throughout history, the, the coronation of a monarch always involved uh, great displays of splendor and, and pageantry. It spare no expense. The king would be dressed in, in the most expensive robes and jewels, and they would be driven through the city in a big carriage or on, on horses. Accompanying him would be all of his officials, his foreign dignitaries, the nation's finest soldiers, high-ranking military and religious officials, in a long parade where people would scream and shout. And at the climax of all of these events, the king would be often presented with some kind of scepter or sacred stone, a crown that would signify the passing of authority to this new monarch. The celebration would last sometimes for days. Musicians, all the latest rock bands. That's right. Dom, you're probably there. <laughs> Photo booths, where you have pictures taken with the king. The celebration of a sovereign. The highlight, the majesty, and the glory, and the power and the dignity of the king. Some of us got to see a little bit of this when Queen Elizabeth was, uh, had her coronation many, many years ago. Now I bring all of this up because today we will look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, and we're going to look at what I believe and what Scripture would tell us is the most important coronation in all of history the most significant one that has ever taken place. Now, traditionally, this coronation is called Jesus' triumphal entry. And it's his last major appearance before his crucifixion. And it was an extremely important moment in his divine ministry on earth. And it's an event we often see dramatized in movies and cartoons. Sometimes churches, when they're feeling really creative juices going, they'll have a donkey come down the center aisle. We're not quite there yet. But I think we get so used to the story, we often don't stop to understand the significance. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to look at the significance of this day and how it should change the way that we view Christ the way that we view this week. So let me set the scene for you. It's, it's Passover week in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, uh, during Passover, the amount of people would swell to around 2 million, almost the size of the population of Houston. And people would come from all over to celebrate the Feast of Remembrance, which recalls when God saved his people from slavery in Egypt. You can read about that in the book of Exodus. And as we open up to Matthew chapter 1, we find Jesus preparing to make his way into Jerusalem. 
Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, we'll stop there. So we see Jesus come to a, a small village, which was on the Mount of Olives, which is a large hill on the east side of Jerusalem. In fact, this is a picture taken from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And this is the path that Jesus would have taken down this hill as he rode in on Palm Sunday. Now, I show you this because I want you to remember this isn't story time. This is a real place where real people lived and real events of God's word took place and have real implications for our lives. As we move into verse 2, we will see what happens as he makes his way. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, which is an Old Testament expression for those, everybody who lived in Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up and they're saying, who is this guy? Who is this? Who's causing this ruckus? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and the multitudes of people were so excited. They were treating him like a king. They were laying down palm branches in, in, in their clothes before him, which I know doesn't seem that exciting to me, but they didn't have smoke and ice and light shows and fireworks back then, so this is what they did to honor people. Now, there was two reasons that they were so excited. The first reason we find right here in John. It says that the crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. I know it says Matthew up there. That's my editing problems. It's, I meant John. All right, so the point is, they heard about Lazarus. He raised Lazarus from the dead. You guys remember the old Carmen song, Lazarus, come forth, and he came out. Everybody was amazed. Well, all the crowd that was there and saw that happen, they'd been spreading his word. And so everybody's all excited. You know, you tend to get excited when someone can raise people from the dead. Maybe you've seen more exciting things than I have, but that would get me going. Now, the second reason is in verse 5, it says Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy that was made by the Old Testament prophet named Zechariah. Zechariah 9, hundreds and hundreds of years before this, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Now, this is not the only prophecy we find in the Old Testament about a coming Savior. And then these people would have been aware of all of these other prophecies. So when you, you take all these prophecies of a coming king, coming Messiah, you match it with a dude who can raise someone from the dead, you're going to get your hopes up. In fact, you can see this, that they call him uh, right here in, it looks like in, in verse 9. They say to him, the son of David, the son of David. This was referenced in another prophecy that was from 2 Samuel. And it predicted this coming king. And this coming king would be a descendant of King David, the same guy who killed Goliath. And Jesus was a descendant of King David. Now this coming king, this descendant of David, he just wasn't any old king that would come and go. The patriarch Jacob, which you read about back in Genesis, he prophesied that this kingly Messiah would come from one of the tribe, the tribe of Judah, one of the tribes of Israel, and he would reign as king. And there would be no end to his reign. So this is why you see them chanting Hosanna, which means save now. A quote from Psalm 118, save now, they're yelling over and over and over and over. Now before we move on, if you ever want an interesting study, study the prophecies of Jesus. There are somewhere between, I don't remember the number, somewhere between 450 and 550 uh, references to Jesus in the Old Testament that he is, that were about Christ. And I think there's around, and if you go conservative, this is way, 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 way conservative, 300, he's already fulfilled. People who wrote this stuff hundreds, years before Jesus. And Jesus fulfilled them. I don't know about you, but that gets me excited. Now, we still put faith in Christ because it says by faith, but I will tell you right now, at the end of the day, in my opinion, it takes a lot less faith to believe in Jesus Christ than it does to take faith to believe anything else. We often say, man, I don't want to believe in Jesus. He's not here in front of my eyes, but we'll go and we'll read star charts or horoscopes or we'll believe in magic rocks. That's a thing. I'm not just being funny. I tell you right now, God requires faith to believe in him, but it is not an unfound faith. Take me up on it. Study the prophecies of Jesus. You will find out that it is a reminder that the Bible is an entire story of Christ from beginning to end. God's love, his mercy, his grace from cover to cover. Amen, church? But for today's purposes, we find the miracles of Jesus, we find the prophecies of the coming king, and you can see why they're all excited. It was a day of celebration, of coronation. It was a day of excitement for everybody who saw Jesus. Maybe the only one who was not excited was Jesus himself. The apostle Luke, in his story of Jesus' life, includes something that Matthew does not. He writes about something that Jesus did while riding into Jerusalem. Let's see if I can find it here somewhere. There we go. Luke 9, 41. It says, And when he drew near and saw the city, speaking of Jerusalem, he says he wept over it, saying, 
Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. All of this celebration and Jesus' reaction was to weep for Jerusalem. Why? We need to ask this question because the same reasons that Jesus weeped over Jerusalem are the very same reasons that we miss out on finding God, on seeing him for who he really is. I think one of the reasons that he wept is because these people, when celebrating him, were looking for the wrong kind of savior. You've studied the Old Testament, you know this, that the Jews were under Roman occupation at this time. And there was this prophecy that came of this coming king, and they thought, man, this coming king, he is going to be a political leader, he's going to be a military leader, he is going to restore Israel to greatness that it once had. I mean, they were about to celebrate Passover, commemorating the time, the Lord's miraculous time, when he delivered them from Israel. I mean, delivered them from Egypt. I mean, what better occasion for the king to return, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, to free them from Roman occupation, from their tyranny. This is it. This is the moment. You could hear Mel Gibson off in the background yelling, Freedom! It's a Braveheart reference for those of you staring at me blankly. The people wanted a conquering, reigning Messiah who would come in great military power and free them from the brutal yoke of Rome. But the problem is, is that Jesus was not there for Rome. He was there for something greater than just military conquest. He was there to bring peace. He was there to bring peace. And you see this in the way that he arrived. You know, in Western lands, we think of the donkey as a lowly animal. Or we think of Shrek. And that donkey, right? A comedic animal. But in the Middle East, the donkey was a noble, kingly creature. But had a special message attached to it. If a king was going to war, he rode a war horse, Right? But if it was a time of peace, the king rode a donkey to symbolize peace. And so Jesus here, he is riding a donkey. He says, I am bringing peace. But this is not peace with the Romans. He was coming to bring peace between man and God. And if you've studied the Old Testament you, and, and Israel, you know their problem was never being conquered by other nations. That wasn't their deal. Their deal was they always had a lack of peace between them and God. It was a spiritual problem that they had. Anytime that they were conquered, it was because they had turned their back on God. He removed their, his favor from them, his protection from them, and they'd get crushed 
over and over. And then he would save them, they would worship him, and then they would fail him and repeat it over and over and over again. They needed peace with God. That's what Jesus came to do. And we are the same way. Every single one of us sitting in this room need peace with God. That is what we are looking for in our lives, whether we know it or not. We need peace with God. Do you have peace with God this morning? Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. Sin is what separates us from God. That is the true problem in this world. You take everything, everything bad in this world, you go as far back as you can, and at the root you will find sin. Israelites thought the problem was that they were at war with Rome, but the the true realization that Jesus was bringing is that they were at war with God. Romans 5 tells us this is the same for us, that without Jesus, we are enemies of God. That's what sin has done to you. I know in America, we love not to talk about sin. We love to use the term mistakes. We love to have this light view of our relationship with God. But according to God's word, because of sin, you are an enemy of God without Christ. You are at war with God. You are on the side of Satan. There's no middle ground. But Romans 5 also tells us that because of Jesus, we can have peace with God. Jesus did not come to reign in some earthly throne. As we read in Ephesians 3, he has come to reign in the hearts of men. Do you know that this morning? This is where he wants to reign, in your heart. He wants to bring peace to your heart as your king. All of your doubts that you struggle with, with all your anxieties, all of your fears, all of your addictions, all of your pride, all of your struggles come down to your sin. He wants to bring peace to them all. Have you ever thought about that? If you, if you don't sit here with your faith in Christ, that all of the ugliness inside you, all of the fear and the anxiety, all of that, all of that self-doubt that you look at you, when you look in the mirror, that it's not random, that it's effects of sin on you. Jesus has come to reign in our hearts, to bring peace. But many of these people could not see it. And because they could not see it, what did they do? As we will see on Friday, they rejected him. They rejected him. They hung him on a tree. Like many of us, we want Jesus on our own terms or we don't want him at all. We will not bow to a king who is not of our liking. They wanted Jesus to destroy Rome, but they didn't want Jesus to destroy their cherished sins or their hypocritical and superficial religion. But Jesus will not deliver them on their own terms. And in the same way, many of us here today, we're we're, we're only looking for the Jesus that suits our needs. Some of us, we want Jesus who will make us happy. 
We want Jesus to bring happiness, happy Jesus. We want Jesus to bring us a new job, a new house. We want Jesus to bring us more money, to bring us good things. We want Jesus to make us happy. And if he doesn't, we reject him. We, some of us, we want the Jesus who will save us from all our struggles. Jesus, I want you to save my marriage. I want you to save me from cancer. I want you to save me from the bad things. And, and, and if things don't turn out the way you think they should, you reject him. Some of us, we, we want a Jesus who is our buddy. We, want, we, don't, we don't want a Jesus who requires anything of us. A Jesus who doesn't require any commitment or sacrifice. We, we just want to hang out with him when we want to. And when we don't want to hang out with him, it's okay because he's our buddy. And when we read the Bible, we find we can't do that, so we reject Jesus. Some of us, we want Jesus that we can just do things for, so we can feel better about our place with God. We can earn favor with God. We, I go to church, and I serve, and I give money, and I, and, I, and I follow all the traditions of my religion, and they make me feel secure. Some people, when I meet them, I ask them if they know Jesus, they'll say to me, uh, I'm, I'm Catholic. I got some news for you. There will be some Catholics in hell. Now, you know, some of you know me for a while. I have major issues with some of what the, or a lot of what the Catholic Church would teach. But listen, Protestants, you're not off the hook either. Some of us, we're so tied up in, in our denominations. I'm Baptist. I got to be Baptist or got to be Presbyterian or, or whatever it may be. Same thing. They'll be Baptist in hell. They'll be Presbyterians in hell. None of these traditions or names mean that Jesus is our king. In fact, he, he says this in Matthew 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name. And we do mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. There is no salvation in your denomination. There is no salvation in your religion. There is only salvation in a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is why he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Salvation is in knowing Jesus, having faith in Jesus, believing in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. Finally, some of us, we, we want this new postmodern, pluralistic, revelistic Jesus. A Jesus who bends to whatever we want. It's okay if you ignore certain parts of the Bible, the ones that make you uncomfortable, the ones that you don't like. If that makes it easier for you to follow Christ, go right ahead. 
Jesus is not a halfway kind of king. Either he is your king or he is not. And so because of these things and the same attitude, like the multitude at the triumphal entry, we will loudly claim Jesus as long as he is who we want him to be. And if not, we reject him. But church, Jesus is not customizable. He will not adapt for you. He will not adjust for you. He will not make tweaks for you. He will not transform for you. He has come to transform you. But they did not get this, nor did they want this. And so Jesus weeps because he knew what their rejection would bring. He said, days will come upon you where no stone will be left because they did not recognize who he was, because they rejected him. And Jesus, he was looking 35 years into the future, not very long, when during Passover again, a holocaust would come to the Jewish nation, where Titus would roll in with his Roman army that would level everything to the ground. Historians estimate that one million, one million Jews died in the siege that the rest were sold into slavery. In fact, there's, there's a monument to this victory still to this day of the Romans carrying off all of the treasures of Jerusalem. And what was true for them is true for us. If Jesus is who he says he is, then one day judgment will come for all of those who reject, reject Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Psalms 9.27 says, It is appointed for a man to die just once, and then comes, anybody? Judgment. If Jesus looked into your future this morning, like he looked into the future of Jerusalem, what would he find? What would he find? You know what's interesting about this triumphal entry is that pretty much for the three years of Jesus' ministry, he always stayed quiet. He was under the radar. He didn't like want to make a big scene about being king. And this is like the first time that he, he publicly revealed himself as king. And what he was doing is he was confronting everybody with his claim to be the Messiah. It was his act. He said, look, I'm king. He goes, I, I may not be the king you want, but I am the king that you need. Rome is not your true threat. Your sin is your true threat. You can accept it and crown me, or you can deny it, and you can kill me. Today, you sitting in here are confronted by the same Christ. Through his word and by his spirit. He gives us a similar decision. He says to you, you can either crown me as king or you can walk away from me. But if you choose to crown me as king, realize you're choosing to crown me over king, king over everything in your life. Everything. You do not get to pick and choose. Because far too many of us pick and choose. 
And this is what they did. They wanted some to free them from Rome, like I said, but they didn't want anybody to mess with their religion. You know, it would be like me inviting Steve Pratt, our electric guitarist here, to my house. I say, Steve, I want you to come over for lunch after church. And Steve, I, I want you to know it's okay for you to come in, but Pratt needs to stay outside. Steve, you can come in, but Pratt needs to stay outside. Well, that would be impossible for Steve to do because Steve is not Steve without the Pratt, and, and, and he's not Pratt without the Steve. And in the same way, you can't say, I want you to come in, Savior. I want you to save me from my sins, but, but King, but Lord, I want you to stay out. And far too many are getting taught this in today's churches. And this is why he's telling you right here on Palm Sunday, in the triumphal entry, and for anybody who reads his word, because I am the king of kings, I am the Lord of lords, either crown me in total or not at all. I will not force myself about, uh, upon you, but I will not deliver you on my, your own terms. And we're in this culture that says, oh, God will save me no matter what. It's all about me. He loves me. He sits there at night in heaven, and he has a picture of me on the wall, and he just stares at me. Oh, my wonderful creations. How I love them. How I'm going to do anything for them. We, we, we read these, these songs, we sing these songs that, uh, with, with lyrics like, there's no wall that God won't knock down coming after you. There's nothing he's not going to, he's going to save you no matter what. The problem is that's not what Jesus says. He says, repent and believe. Jesus says, look what I have done. What I have done for you, I have paid the price for your sin. I have paid your debt out of my own wallet. There's nothing else you need to do. You can either, you, you, you don't, can't earn it. You just must accept it. You must accept by faith that you believe in my salvation and crown me as Lord of your life. It's almost like what he says to the Laodicean church in Revelation, which we'll study this fall. He goes, I stand at the door and knock. Who will open it? I have no doubt in here, just by sheer percentages, that there's somebody in here and Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. I plead with you, do not ignore him any longer. Open the door. Stop peeking in, peeking out the window to see if it's safe to open. Pacing back and forth whether you should do it. I implore you, open the door today. The prophet Isaiah, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Far too many of us were so confident that tomorrow will come. We're no, never guaranteed or promised tomorrow. And some of us forget that when we ignore the voice of the Lord, it becomes easier to ignore it the next time, and the next time, and the next time, and the next time, until you can't hear him anymore. I have no doubt that today salvation is at hand 
for all who would call upon the name of the Lord, who would put their faith in him as Savior and as Lord. The only choice we must make is whether we will crown him as king in our lives or not. 